Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, uh, friends. Welcome to Season 5 of Wisdom of Friends Show. I'm your host, Cal Ross. And today I'm really excited to be introducing you to a good friend of mine. Her name is Alyssa Hayes. Now, would you like to know what extraordinary leadership at every level in an organization looks like? Then you need to hear Alyssa Hayes' astonishing story. After an 18-wheeler truck going 65 miles per hour hit her body, she was propelled 90 feet through the air and ultimately into the position she's in now as a speaker, consultant and executive coach empowering organizations, individuals and audiences internationally. With honesty, humor and heart-wrenching stories, Alyssa reveals the simple but powerful truths she uncovered through her miraculous survival. She shares the character and choices it took to save lives and rebuild her own after the near-fatal collision that cost her a successful 20-year career as a performer and CEO of a one-of-a-kind entertainment company. By applying her hard-won leadership lessons and leveraging adversity, you will grow star performer communities and achieve extraordinary impact with your team, all without the messy bother of actually getting hit by a truck. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Alyssa Hayes. So good afternoon, Alyssa. Welcome to the Wisdom of Friends show. I'm really excited that you took the time to be on this program. And let me start off with my first impressions of you. We met almost two years ago at the National Speakers uh, Conference or Summit, if you will, at the Mercer Island uh, in Washington, uh, Seattle. And what stood out for me was just like when I learned about your background uh, your 30-year career as a uh, actor and uh, choreographer, dancer, and also a CEO of an entertainment company, and how you transitioned that to a successful professional speaking career with uh, just so much of finesse. And I knew that having you on the show would be such a treat for audience. So I'm so glad that you took the time to be on this program. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Cal. I am so happy to be able to talk with you. That's so great. And one of the ways uh, we kick off our <clears throat> shows is asking our guests a very simple yet profound question, and that is, what is your favorite quote or philosophy that you live by, and how have you applied it to your life? Well, many years ago, when I was going through a big transition in my company, uh, I I developed five rules for myself uh, when it came to networking and sales is where it really started out because I I kind of hate doing that, to be honest. And, um, and then those five rules grew up, became how I ran my company and I ended up calling it living five rules. It, it became the guiding principles in my life. Uh, It's pretty simple. And, but Turns out kind of profound. The first one, it's not about you. And the second, you have to actually care. 
The third, ask more, tell less. Number four, do the hard thing. And number five, play the long game. So really, it, it comes down to having humility, that it's just not about you, uh, to having compassion, to actually care, which is different than kindness. Kindness is being nice. Compassion is at a, a deeper level of actually caring, and people can always tell when you're faking it. The third one is really about creativity, to ask more and tell less. I think we all, myself included, we get very busy telling people our thoughts, our opinions, our expertise, what they should do, blah, blah, blah. But we don't ask enough questions. The fourth one is about fortitude, doing the hard thing, which is usually the right thing. That's we in my family, we call that mom's moral maxim. I used to tell that to my kids when they were little, do the hard thing. And the fifth one is really about patience, to play the long game. We all want a quick fix. We want whatever project we're doing. We want instant success because nowadays that's what we see all over the media. So that ends up being our expectations, which doesn't actually make any sense. And that's how I operated my company. That is so great, Alyssa, and I really liked, uh, you know, you're mentioning the dis- distinction between kindness and compassion, and compassion really being that you really care at a deep level. I really love that definition. And uh, I know one of the things that, which is you have transitioned successfully into professional speaking, which is uh, in the area of leadership, and we'll get into that, because you have a different take on leadership, uh, which have uh, really been, uh, you know, researching your background, and I've been fascinated about and we'll talk about that uh, as we go along but one of the things I'm curious about is where did you grow up and how would you describe your childhood (laughs) Uh, I I was a military brat that's how I would describe my childhood (laughs) heavy emphasis on brat Uh, (laughs) I was born abroad in Germany uh, because my parents were stationed there and then lived the first 12 years of my life in the Midwest in Nebraska and Southern Illinois, which is where my family's from. So I have deep Midwestern, actually coal mining country roots from deep Southern Illinois. And I can make a mean cornbread in a cast iron skillet. And then my family moved to Washington when I was 12, again, military. Uh, This is where I've been the rest of my life. We moved to Puyallup, Washington, living in the suburbs, I had a really wonderful upbringing. My mother was a physician. She's Both my parents retired now, but my mom was a family physician. And my dad was a meteorologist in the military, but became a stockbroker when he re- retired out of the military and had a successful financial planner career until he retired. Great. And I... So it sounds like uh, they've had a profound influence on you and specifically your travel from the Midwest. And I, I lived in the Midwest for like many years, almost 10 years in Michigan and Ohio before I moved out to the West Coast. And it's certainly different in terms of, uh, you know, the values and uh, the Midwestern values are something that I really uh, cherish. And it's really been uh, one of my fondest memories uh, living out there. But one thing I'm curious about, I know you've had a successful career in the entertainment industry and starting your own entertainment company as a CEO. Mm-hmm. 
So did this something that you knew you always wanted to do? And the reason I ask is most people, most of our audiences, we get these questions from them that, you know, how do we know what a calling is? How do we know what a passion is? So was there a moment in your life growing up that you knew that this is something that I wanted to pursue or was it just by happenstance or what's the story behind it? Interesting. I... I always knew I loved being on stage. I I've been on stage since I was four years old as a little little dancer girl. I grew up dancing and all through my childhood into my teens until my feet kind of gave out on me. And uh, then I moved later into doing some choreography work. I was in theater. Got involved in that in junior high. One fantastic junior high school teacher who I happened to be in his speech class, his public speaking class, and he was also the drama teacher. So he said, you know, Elise, I'd really like you to audition for the play. I'd never done anything like that, but I'd been on stage. So I said, oh, okay, sure, Mr. Carver. And he cast me in the lead in the play, and that was a super big deal. I was uh, all of, I think, 14 maybe at the time. And then I went on to get a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in theater. I was recruited into a prestigious MFA, Master of Fine Arts degree program, which I promptly dropped out of because I decided I'd rather get married. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I was always on stage and, and worked in theater as an actor after I got out of college doing various things. Being an entrepreneur, though, is a whole different story. So I am an accidental entrepreneur. I, it, I, and it turns out I love it. I absolutely love it. But I had no idea because nobody, there was no mentor in my life like Mr. Carver who was saying, I see this skill in you and I really want to nurture this. So I fell into it by accident after I had was, got an acting gig. I just one more gig to audition for, for a show called Let's Pretend Circus that traveled around. And I ended up doing that with my husband for a couple of years. Uh, Washington, Oregon, California, Hawaii, all over the place. And then... Uh, left that to have kids later the woman who created that show called me up and said hey Lisa I've, I've gone through this divorce and you know I'm making some changes in my life I would really like to sell this to you and your husband you're the best I ever had working for me and I, I think you'd be great at this she was the first person to say I think you would be great at actually doing a business and I told her we would pray about it because faith is a huge part of our decision-making process. And she, it's a funny story. I don't know if you want to hear that whole story. Absolutely. Go for it. Okay. Uh, she wanted $5,000 for the show. And $5,000 is not a lot of money. But at that time in our lives, $5,000 was a ton of money. We, had no, we didn't have $5,000. So we prayed about it and decided but amongst ourselves that – well, we could offer her 2500 and the remainder after a, the first contract that was already in place. Now, I didn't know, of course, that that contract is not actually legally reassignable to the purchaser of the, of the company. 
but uh, that's how little I knew. But we decided, okay, if I offer her twenty five, she'd probably take that with twenty five hundred after that first gig. So that was great, except we didn't have twenty five hundred dollars. <laughs> and I was at church with a group of friends. We were praying about this. I had my two little kids. My oldest two at that time were, uh, I think, like four and two or something. And I get them all buckled in the car. I'm driving home and there's this voice in my head. And I know this makes me sound like a crazy woman, but there was this voice in my head saying, I've already given you the money. I've already given you the money. And I was quite annoyed by this. I was saying, what money? If I had $2,500 lying around, I think I'd know it. I pull it to my house. I'm sitting in my car with the engine running and I can't get over this thought. I've already given you the money. And all of a sudden, like a cartoon, the light bulb goes off over my head and I remember that when I was pregnant with my first child, my best friend from college, my dearly best friend, had died of AIDS. Uh, it was it was horrible, tragic. He actually uh, died during about that same time of year. And his mom sent me a check, said, Billy always wanted to take care of you. The check was for $2,500. And I had carefully put it away in a mutual fund because I didn't want to blow that money on something stupid. So I went running into the house, screaming to my husband, God wants us to buy a circus. <laughs> so we bought like, the circus and that was how I became an accidental entrepreneur and that grew and grew and grew into my company and brought me where I am ultimately today. No, that is such a wonderful story. And a couple of things that jump out from this is one that you mentioned, you know, um, you were fortunate enough in uh, school when your public speaking teacher pulled you aside and asked you to encourage you to participate in acting and drama. And that was that gave you the momentum to pursue that. And <clears throat> as far as the business is concerned, uh, you did not have any mentors, but it was that friend of yours who actually uh, suggested that you'd be really good at this and that was your foray into starting this business and so my question to you is you know this is such an important point that we all need people in our lives uh, from time to time uh, who can encourage us who can inspire us to pursue and stretch ourselves to pursue our dreams and so what would be your advice to, for people who may not have those kind of people around them how can they go about seeking that kind of expert feedback. And you mentioned one way to do that is through prayer. Uh, can you think of any other ways that people can really look at enhancing their potential? Absolutely. Find mentors. And if you don't have the people around you who, who seem like the right mentors for that, then obviously you need to go find them. So that means, for example, joining a group that might be Toastmasters. If you want to learn how how to create a speech join toastmasters you want a place to go practice join toastmasters if you want to learn how to do the business of public speaking you have to join a group like national speakers association if you want to be successful in any entrepreneurial endeavor or in business you need to find people who are doing what you want to do get involved in that group take the time spend the money, whatever it is, get involved with that group. And then instead of showing up 
and telling people how awesome you are because people have a tendency to want to come and talk about themselves. Mm. Come with listening. Show up listening. <clears throat> no, that's such a great point. And uh, we all uh, absolutely uh, can use uh, experts and, you know, like a sounding board and mentors who can who walk the path before us, can show us and guide us along the way. So and that brings up our next question is who were your mentors growing up uh, and whom did you look up to or you wanted to emulate uh, as a child or uh, as a public speaker or as an entrepreneur? Anybody that you want to give a shout out to? Uh, sure. Uh, of course, I mentioned Mr. Carver, my junior high drama teacher who has uh, since passed on. And I had many teachers like that along the way in my life, but in my career as a as a business person, as I transitioned there, I have friends of mine who who I, I would tell them that art is my first language and business is a learned second language. Uh, friends of mine in within the fairs and festivals industry, who I got very close to, Tammy Ryan and Alan Bruce, the three of us became a known sort of oh, like the Three Musketeers, and I learned so much from them about about how to do business, and I learned a lot from my parents. As I said, my, my dad was financial advisor, and my family, my brother, my sister, my sister is a hospital executive, my brother is a financial advisor. I, I, have, the, I have the good fortune to have an awesome family that I'm very close to, and I learn a lot from. My husband, who has the patience of Job, teaches me how to how to how to negotiate in ways that are patient. <laughs> no, that's such a great uh, point. And you know, somebody once said that patience is like a bitter plant, but with a sweet fruit. And it's such a virtue to have. Uh, you know, especially in today's uh, day and age of instant gratification, mm-hmm. it really takes uh, something, as you said, like a fortitude and a vision and compassion. Uh, with ourselves to be patient and uh, it's such a great point and and what I also want to ask you Alyssa is uh, you know you speak in the area of leadership and that is something that I you know while I, I was researching your little bit of about your background and what I found out about your take on leadership is that it's not leadership isn't and you mentioned this leadership isn't about who you are uh, it's you don't choose that. It's about what you do and the choices you make when you confront adversity. So my question to you is, when you look back at your life up until now, what would you say was like the breakthrough success moment for you? And, uh, you know, what I mean by that is like the turning point, or in other words, life was never the same again moment. Uh, is, that, uh, is that something that comes to mind uh, that you would like to share? Well, for me, the turning point where life was never the same again was uh, very clearly March 1st, 2014. On that day, while driving to Houston, Texas with two of my employees, we were driving a three-quarter ton diesel truck pulling a 16-foot trailer behind us, and I was at the wheel. I took the wheel because the road's... 
weren't good. The weather wasn't good. Uh, there was a kind of a late winter storm that had blown into the area. And in Oklahoma, we hit an ice storm. The temperatures had plunged suddenly and froze on the ground. My trailer swung out. I had these two young women. They're both 21 years old in the truck. One is a Ford F-250. Uh, one girl named Mo, we called her Mo, sat in the front seat. And another girl named Joy, who we had just picked up in Wichita, was sitting in the back seat of this F-250. <laughs> we had been listening to an audio book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I had been teaching these young girls all about saving their money and, you know, responsible things and all of a sudden we're sliding and my whole focus instantly became on protecting them that was my job because I was the boss and my first way of protecting them was keeping them calm when we were faced with this sudden adversity I I just calmly responded. It's like, hey, this don't worry. This is these this kind of thing can happen. We're just going to steer into it, take the foot off the gas, of course. And I'm being super calm, even though inwardly my heart was pounding. But my job was to help them. And we slid. I wasn't able to straighten it out because it was only a two-lane highway. The truck got stuck up against a guardrail. Uh, jackknifed on the highway and I was the only one who could see the headlights of a semi coming at us in the rearview mirror they had no idea Wow! and again I was the closest one to safety I was within 8 feet of safety but my first priority because we were on the left side of the road but my first priority was again them and because that was my job. I was the boss. I was the leader. It's my job to take care of them. And I evacuated those girls out of the truck. Uh, thankfully, they did both make it to safety with only, uh, they slipped and fell, but they made it with only minor cuts and bruises. Uh, unfortunately, we were first hit by a semi-truck that hit the trailer, then by an SUV that hit the back end of the truck, and then a third vehicle with a semi-truck going 65 miles an hour on cruise control hit my body on the run. I, I was thrown 90 feet through the air and impaled on a cable guardrail that runs down the middle of the highway uh, and was still conscious in five degree weather. So thankfully, I don't actually remember that part. I, I just know that that's what happened. Um, but that is the point where everything changed when I woke up 10 days later in an ICU. And my life was never the same. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> this is a really, a uh, very touching story. And, uh, and, so th so that brings up, I mean, so many questions, as you can probably tell. <laughs> sure. So what was the transition point from that? I mean, you know, for people listening to this podcast, they probably are probably going through 
uh, you know, a lot of adversities or challenges in their lives. And oftentimes when you're confronted with that adversity, uh, you know, it's not an easy thing to sometimes look at the optimistic side of things. But you were able to make a successful transition and you become a role model for all of us in the community here. So my question to you is, what were... What did you have to do to really empower yourself and like really do a paradigm shift? And, you know, one of the things you teach us is about confronting adversity and that's really leadership. So tell us about uh, how was the transition for you and what did you have to do? Well, uh, thank you, Cal. That's a great question. Um, I, I had a choice to make. I spent seven weeks lying in an ICU uh, before I was flown back to Seattle and uh, continued to stay in, in hospitals for another eight weeks. And, and I've had multiple hospitalizations and surgeries since then and, and so on. And so I, I face adversity over and over and over. I had a choice to make. I remember laying there in the hospital early on, deciding whether I was going to be reactive or proactive. I could react to all of the negative circumstances. I, you know, my, I was my body was crushed and I could go into all kinds of details that don't matter because your listeners, hopefully, I I pray, have never had that kind of adversity hit them. But like I say, sometimes life hits you like a truck. Sometimes there's an actual truck. (laughs) Everybody has experienced feeling like they've been hit by a truck. I mean, maybe they lost their job or or maybe they've had to fire somebody or they've lost a marriage or, or something like that. And you have to decide, are you going to be reactive, which is not being a leader? Or are you going to be proactive? And being proactive, then, as a leader, you have a choice. Are you going to function in a way that people want to surround you? And I knew I needed people around me. I was going to need a big community. I already had a great big community of people before that. And partly, I I just didn't want to screw that up. (laughs) And partly, I knew I was going to continue to really need around me a unified community of people who would go along this ride with me. And we do that, whether it's in companies or in families or just personally in our lives. We need a community of people around us who will go along the ride. So you have to decide, are you going to be proactive? And if the answer is yes, then from that point forward, you have to have the fortitude to make the choices to be the kind of person that people will come around you and go along the ride. That's such a great point. And 
what I'm hearing uh, you say is like when confronted with the adversity, I mean, essentially you have a decision moment where you ask yourself, do you want to be reactive to the circumstances or you want to be proactive? And if you choose to be proactive, then you have to have that fortitude to really start empowering yourself and making some tough calls. But I think one of the ways that you suggest is surrounding yourself with community that is willing to go with you on this ride. And I mean, <clears throat> environment plays such a big factor. And no matter uh, what kind of a uh, you know vision that we set out for our lives, and that is such a great point. And so my next question to you is, uh, you talk about specifically with your leadership now, you turn that experience around and you have really been uh, helping executives and leaders out there to uh, empower themselves to turn problems into opportunities and you give them four specific actions that you talk about. Can you uh, mm -hmm. highlight a little bit about that? Absolutely. There are four specific things that you can do, the way you function with other people that magnetizes a community of people around you. People are just drawn to it. Like like fireflies, you know, they just light up around you. And the first one is to have the courage to put others first. Just like I had to have courage in that moment, sitting at the wheel of the truck, to put other people first, that when adversity comes, you have to have the courage to not go into self-protection mode. That, that, that takes real heart to put others first. The second piece is you, you have to have comedy. You've got to have a sense of humor about it. One of the stories that I tell in uh, my keynote called Impact, A Crash Course in Leadership, so obviously there's some humor there. You've got to have comedy. I tell this story of, of waking up in the hospital and seeing my family around me. They're clearly in horrible mental pain. So after they take tubes out of my throat and so on, the nurse asks, can they bring me anything? Would I like something to drink? And my response was, can I have a beer? <laughs> I'm lying there on life support machines. My life is pretty lousy at that moment. And I was pretty certain they weren't going to give me a beer. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I did that because I knew it would make my family laugh. And my mom then turned to my husband and she goes, oh, she's in there. Because <laughs> they didn't <laughs> even know, you know if, if I was brain dead. They didn't know. Mm. So when faced with adversity, real leaders have to get a laugh. So that's the specific action. Get a laugh. Do anything just to get a laugh from people. It, it elevates, or lowers, rather, lowers cortisol levels, elevates endorphins, and makes people function better, makes better decisions that way. The fourth thing is you've got to use creativity. My whole background, obviously, in art and creativity and design, I've done a lot of work as a designer. All of that came to play in how I've had to move forward in my life as a person with disabilities. That means instead of accepting a problem as it is and saying, well, I guess we're just going to have to live with this and now we're going to have to do this and all these, I'm going to have to, that we respond by asking, what if? Okay, well, what if I didn't have to do this? What would that look like? How could I change that? 
what if, to just constantly be asking, what if something else was possible? Because it changes how you think about things. Again, it elevates the thinking of everybody around you into more of a game mentality, more of a puzzle-solving mentality than into a hunkered-down mentality. And the fourth very important specific action is compassion that uh, you have to focus on feelings. Again, like I said earlier, compassion is different than kindness. We can be kind and have compassion, or we can be kind and we're just being nice. Mm. When we, you know, it, it's wonderful and it's lovely to buy coffee for the person in line behind you at Starbucks. That's delightful. But you don't know how they feel. You have no idea what's going on with that person. So you don't really have compassion. You're just being nice, which is great. But it's important that people not confuse it. Real leaders have compassion. They take the time to listen to other people and focus on how they're feeling because then people feel heard and they feel seen, they feel validated, and they really want to hang out with you. And like I said, go along the ride. That's how you build community. I love that. And <clears throat> just to recap, so the four things or the four actions that people can really uh, consistently start looking at when faced with an adversity or even just regularly looking at their lives and taking inventory of uh, the situation they might be in is really exhibiting courage, as you said. And it's really about, you know, uh, putting others first and uh, focusing on your team, focusing on, you know, as a, if you're a leader, like really focusing on uh, on your employees and uh you know, people that you're responsible for. And the second thing that you talk about is comedy, is like looking at a sense of humor, looking at getting a laugh, because uh, that's how you elevate and lighten up the situation. And uh, and finally, uh, the third one being the creativity is, you know, asking the what if questions. And that really helps you uh, change your perspective in a way that can, uh, you know, basically the idea is lateral thinking, looking at ways that, can make the problem, uh, you know, solve itself, and oftentimes just by asking mm-hmm. a different question. And and finally, compassion. This is like my favorite. Is it's so different from kindness? It's about really connecting with another human being, understanding how they feel, and uh, and once you really can get how they feel, that's how you build community. And that's I yeah. love that. That's so great. Uh, so my next question to you is. Uh, what books have you gifted or reread over the years? Anything that you would like to recommend for our audience? Well, one of my favorite books is The War of Art, just for anybody who is trying to produce work and struggling with it, especially if you're self-employed. and uh, or, or even, actually, if you work for a company and you're trying to produce things, but you're having trouble... You've got that great idea. Everybody's got great ideas, but you're having trouble actually getting it out in the world. Read The War of Art. Uh, and another one of my favorite books, this one is is a bit of a surprise, but is The Inner Game of Tennis. Mm. <laughs> Oddly enough, The Inner Game of Tennis is 
only very marginally about tennis, and I don't play tennis. It's about mental game, uh, the kind of mental game that athletes have. It is about being deeply, deeply focused, and that kind of deep focus is what you need when working on a task, but it's also what you need when you're listening to a person mm. so that you're not scattered all over the place. I like that. And we'll include this in our show notes. It's The War of Art. I believe it's Stephen Pressfield. Uh, and it's been highly recommended on the show by many, many guests. And then yes. the, other, the other one is Inner Game of Tennis. Okay, great. And uh, the next one, uh, the next question that I have for you is, uh, and this is more of a hypothetical situation. If you could go back in time, Alyssa, and talk to your young self, to your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give her? Oh, wow. If I could go back and talk to Elisa at 20 years old, I would say, you have no idea how much power you have. You're, you're so busy being consumed with trying to prove that you have value. And all you need to do is connect to the value you already have. Really, really own that. That you bring something unique to the world that only you can bring. So relax. Quit quit working so hard at trying to show everybody. Just be. I like that. That's great. That's connect to your value and really realizing your own inner power. Mm-hmm. That's such an important point for all of us to remember. Um, the next question is, uh, what's your definition, Alyssa, of a successful life or a good life? Having uh, seen the ebb and flow of life at this point in your career and your life, what would you say makes up a good, successful life? <laughs> well, this isn't original, but it, it is truth. I'm, I'm sitting in my office here as I'm talking to you, and tacked to my wall unceremoniously with a thumbtack is the quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. I've had it there for years that says, what is success? To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to find the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, this is to have succeeded." <clears throat> wow, I like that. That's really uh, powerful. <laughs> awesome. Uh, are we going to switch gears here, uh, Alyssa, yeah. and uh, we're going to move on to our next section. And these are some of the questions we have received from the audience. So uh, the first question I have for you is, what stops people, in your opinion, from achieving their full potential? Hmm. Besides fear. <laughs> Besides fear. <laughs> right, right. I think that what stops people from achieving their full potential is a lack of focus. And myself absolutely included, and maybe I'm just saying this because it's me. It 
is that we are pulled in so many different directions that we find it difficult. I find it difficult. And therefore, it's it's something that I try to focus on to to be very mindfully focused on one thing at a time, whether we are having a conversation with somebody to really focus on that, because you can do things a lot faster if you're focused. You don't spend so much time mentally swimming around the fishbowl. Mm. You just go straight for the castle at the bottom. If that makes any sense. No, it does actually. There was some research uh, done by I believe it was Harvard and MIT, and what they found out is, uh, you know, multitasking in fact is uh, detrimental to your productivity. It's actually focusing on one thing at a time can make you a productivity ninja, and uh, basically, and that's that's really uh, being present, being single-mindedly focused on one particular thing at a time, and uh, that's such a great point. And the next question I have for you, Alyssa, is what was the best piece of advice you've received in life? Hmm. What's the best piece of advice I received? Ah. I think the best piece of advice I received was from a friend uh, who was kind of kicking my butt, and I, I was complaining about, oh, this or that or blah, 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 you know, all the reasons that I was having difficulty with the situation. And my friend said, just get on with it. I think the best piece of advice is just get on with it. <laughs> I like that. Let's keep moving. Get on with it. Awesome. What is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, Alyssa? Oh, the lesson that took me the longest to learn. I think that the lesson that took me the longest to learn is that taking the time to take care of oneself, to fix healthy food, to exercise, to spend time in whatever spiritual practice one partakes in and in meditation, journaling, that those things, those consume time in your day. Mm -hmm. And People who are driven as leaders almost invariably are don't like to waste time. And so we view those things as time consuming and a time suck and we don't spend time doing it and we don't spend time taking care of ourselves. And we're always looking for shortcuts. Well, I can, you know, if I meditate for two minutes, now I've I've done my super quick meditation or, you know, I'm going to do my three minutes exercise. That's good. So the longest lesson is that the payoffs from spending that time to take care of oneself makes me immensely more capable of doing all of the work that I need to do 
as a person in the world, as a leader, as a member of my family, as a friend, everything. I have to do that first. That's that's great, and it's such an important point. And it reminds me of that uh, seventh habit from the classic book, The Seven mm-hmm. Habits of Highly Effective People of Stephen Covey, uh, which is uh, sharpen the saw. Essentially, yes. it's about uh, self-care and self-renewal because that plays such an important factor in in all aspects of our lives, be it mental, emotional, spiritual, social dimensions of life. And uh, really, I think that's, that's really uh, the key here. Uh, the takeaway is making the time to uh, journal or meditate uh, or just eating healthy, exercising. Those are very, very critical points. So my next question to you is... Uh, in the last few years, or let's say five years, what new belief or behavior, uh, if you will, has most improved your life? Oh, really, it, what has most improved my life, it, it, in some ways, getting hit by a truck was the best thing that could have happened to me. That was almost four years ago now, almost. And... Before that, I love my family, uh, absolutely devoted to them, but I was under this false belief that my workaholic ways were benefiting my family Mm. because I was successful at what I was doing. And therefore, it's it's like trickle down economics. Therefore, that success is going to benefit them. Well, it turns out that doesn't actually work. I won't get into a big discussion of trickle-down economics and why that doesn't work, but (laughs) it doesn't work any better in your personal life. So I, what has changed really in my life is I spend a lot more time with my family. It used to be if my kids were summoned into my office to come talk to mom, they knew they were in trouble. This is a longstanding joke in my family. Whereas now I work with an open door policy all the time. I take the time. Somebody comes in my office. I, we, we sit down. We have a conversation. It's okay. It, and I spend a lot of time just hanging out with my family. And if I don't push out whatever the latest project is, I work a little slower. That, that's okay. My time with them is limited. The work will always be there. And I know that's not a new lesson. It's just that I finally got it. Mm. That's <clears throat> that's such a great point. And I like the analogy of trickle-down econ- uh, economics not working specifically in personal life. And I tend to agree it's uh, it's a whole other ballgame uh, when it comes to personal uh, relationships and really taking the time to be present. And uh, uh, that's, that's a very, very good point. Uh, I would like to... Uh, Branch out into a next section, which is some of the questions we've received is from our audience who are also aspiring speakers and corporate executives who are, you know, always challenged with utilizing their stories, the stories of their lives or stories of their businesses and communicating a message. And you're so masterful at this particular art of public speaking, being a national uh, NSA member for so long. And uh, one of your popular talks is a crash, as you mentioned earlier, impact, a crash course on leadership. So the question I have for you is, people who are listening, uh, specifically in the audience here, 
what do you think is the art of creating an impactful speech, delivering a message or a good presentation? And what has what have you found useful in terms of preparation and crafting a memorable speech? If you if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, first of all, I would say you can't take yourself too seriously. You just have to be willing to laugh at yourself. There's an old, old saying about public speaking. Do you have to be funny to be a public speaker? And the answer is only if you want to get paid. (laughs) So in order to do that, you, you need to tell stories that aren't all about how awesome you are, about how you succeed. You have to be willing to tell stories that are painful. And in my case, obviously, I have stories that are about that are physically painful. But the best stories come from looking at where has something gone wrong. Usually, it's this classic hero's journey. You're going along, things were fine, something dramatic happened. And then there was a change. And that's a very simplified explanation of the hero's journey. But when you look at your at your stories, and this could just be every day. It could be going to the grocery store and something happens. Something that, that makes you go, huh. Or, wow, that's funny. Or, that's weird. And you take the story, basically plug it into the hero's journey structure Things were going along fine. We were on our quest to go do this. Then this bad thing happened. And along the way, we met some people who helped us. And here's what changed. Here's how it changed me. Where people get into the biggest problem is they want to tell an audience, they want to stand there like a guru and say, I'm going to tell you all of this great wisdom. Nobody wants to listen to that. That's awful. (laughs) So instead, if you tell people about an experience where it's changed you, then you have the humility to recognize that what you feel, everybody else is probably feeling too. And then the really important part is that you draw from that an insight into something that's universally applicable and, and an action people can take that they can remember. That's basic speech structure right there that works like gold. And I I, I totally uh, agree with you, and I'd like to just recap, essentially. And uh, for somebody who is actually aspiring to be a keynote speaker or is in the line of business, I mean, they can still adopt the same structure, The Hero's Journey by uh, Joseph Campbell, which is, you know, you're going along the path, something tragic happens, uh, you learn from this experience, there are some insights to be gained, and then essentially uh, you leave the audience with some action items that they can apply to their own lives. And uh, this can be everyday stories. If it's a personal life, you could dig into your personal history about stories that have really made an impact for you. And uh, how would you say uh, that this would apply to business as well? For example, uh, people can certainly use customer stories and uh, uh, things of that nature. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. In in a it, it works. The same thing works in every environment. So you're. You're going into a business meeting. You are 
a mid-level manager, you've got to go into a meeting with your team and you have to tell them about some big changes that are going to happen within the company that are really going to affect them and they're not going to like it. The best way to do that is going to be through a, a speech that uses story to, to give them a lesson and to bring them on board with it. And so let's say you've got a, you, a story about a customer and an experience that the customer, let's, let's talk about hotels. I travel for a living. So let's say it's a mid-level manager of a hotel. And you've got a story about a customer who came to the front desk and they had this, they were expecting you to check into their room and have this relaxing, wonderful experience. You have to paint the whole picture for people because if you say a customer came and complained and therefore we're doing this, then people can't relate as a person. They're not able, from a leadership standpoint, they're not able to focus on feelings. They're not able to have compassion for the customer. So you have to frame it as a story. So a customer came, they're coming on vacation. You know, here's what they were expecting. And, they, and they've and they been saving up this money for this amount of time in their family. And they're all excited. They're going to go uh, relax in their room, maybe run a bath. Instead, they come to the desk and they're told, I nope, we don't have your room. You're going to have to go wait over there. Nope, the coffee shop is closed. They're consistently hit with these no's. What does that feel like for this person and what they were expecting? Now, what's a different way that we could communicate with them that would elevate their feelings? Well, we could have some humor. You could say, wow, you were here right on time. You were awesome. And we did not have your ready room ready right on time. One of these things is not like the others. <laughs> so let's see what we can do to help you. Can could I get you a cup of coffee while you wait? You know, just focusing on feelings. But you do that better when you do it through storytelling to your team because they can focus on what it feels like, either for depending on whatever the circumstance is. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Absolutely does. And I think it, again, goes back to, like, uh, communicating compassion in a way that your audience can actually feel the main character being, uh, you know, that you're talking about. It could be the customer. It could be your own personal story. And and uh, so they can empathize with that. And essentially, you can inspire, motivate, and uh, uh, have them uh, take actions around it. And that's such a great point. So now you've been in the National uh, Speakers uh, Association for quite a few years here, and uh, you've been a professional speaker. So the question for you is, and these are coming from some of the aspiring uh, amateur and pro speakers, is what are the top things that you wish you knew about professional speaking industry uh, when starting out in this profession? Hmm. Well, one of the top things that I that I wish I knew was that the key to being a professional speaker is to be speaking. That means to spend more time and energy going out and working craft, actually doing it, because you don't get better as a speaker 
by thinking about it. You don't get better as a speaker by writing about it or planning for it or going to meetings about it and learning about it. You get better as a speaker by doing it. And I went to lots of meetings, took lots of notes, did all kinds of great things, but it's not until you actually get out and do it. And so that means if you you go and you speak to Rotary Clubs, Kiwanis Clubs, churches, schools, Toastmasters meetings, anywhere you can, and work craft, record it, record yourself every single time so that you can go back and review what you're doing and critique yourself and be your own coach. Yep, good point, really good point. And one of my friends, uh, Darren LaCroix, who's a world champion of public speaking uh, with Toastmasters International, I mean, he has this phrase about stage time, stage time, stage mm-hmm. time. And uh, and it's very similar to like all the comedians, no matter how established they are, uh, they always uh, do the stand-up comedy circuit to keep themselves sharp and and hone their skills. And uh, that's, again, going back to your point, is to keep speaking and that's how you get better and I think uh, one of the additional uh, tips that you've given us is record yourself so you can kind of listen to yourself watch yourself and uh, give yourself that feedback to keep getting better that's so so great and uh, we're going to move on to our next section here in the interest of time and this is a rapid fire round Alyssa Mm -hmm. and I'm going to ask you a bunch of uh, quick fun questions and it's the first uh, response that comes to your mind and if you mm-hmm. want to elaborate on it, feel free to do so. But again, this is the rapid fire round. So are you ready, yes, Alyssa? Yes, sir. Let's All go. All right. So the first question for you is, who's your favorite music band? Oh, I love a band called Hem. Mm-hmm. H-E-M. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I love Hem. All right. Hem it is. What's one thing you can do that might surprise other people? What's one thing I can do that might surprise other people? I can make a perfect martini. Oh, wow. We're going to try that sometime. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, you mentioned that you're an artist and that's been your first love with growing up. So what, in your opinion, is the greatest work of art? Well, the greatest work of art is any work of art that really, really speaks to your soul. I I have a uh, actual size print of a painting that's hanging in the Louvre, and we have it beautifully framed in my house. We just call it Big Naked Guy because it's a Flandrin painting in the Louvre that I saw while backpacking through Europe at a time when I was engaged to my now husband. And the Big Naked Guy Uh, I mean, you don't actually see anything. He's just sitting on a rock. It's very contemplative and classy. But he kind of reminded me of my husband, well, then fiancé. You know, I was in my 20s. It was very emotional. And to me, at that time, that was the greatest work of art because Mm. it meant something to me. Mm, I like that. What color describes you best? Green. Mm. Vibrant and alive. Great. What are the five most important things in life, according to you? Well, like the five most important things in life, uh, family, faith, in however that expresses for you, having, having purpose, having 
playtime, however that manifests. And what would the fifth? Well, having having community of friends and colleagues. Mm. That's an extension of family. Uh, that's awesome. And I know you're a person of faith, and so my question to you is if you could ask God one question, what would it be? I guess the one question would be, where are we going next? (laughs) And then the final question within the rapid fire round, and this is if you could have any message of your choice, Alyssa, on a billboard, what would that be? Any message on a billboard, it would be, you're doing just fine. Mm, I like that. You're doing just fine. That's great. And uh, moving on to our final section, and I've just lost three questions for you, and that is, what is the current personal business passion project that you're working on, you're looking forward to in the next uh, six months to a year? Mm-hmm. Well, I actually, I have something coming up. We were talking earlier about mentors and mentorship. I have a podcast that I'm launching on March 1st about mentoring for women called Letters to My Daughter. Hmm. The, the background on that project and the reason why it's a passion project to my heart is that my, my youngest child, my daughter, is now 17. We've had a lot of conversations about being a young professional woman in the world. And I used to mentor many, many women who worked for my company who were all in their 20s. And you had asked me earlier if I could go back and talk to myself at 20 years old, what would I say? Well, I've had all these conversations with my daughter because I didn't die on March 1st, 2014. And at that time, I had a less than 5% chance of survival, probably less than 3%. And my daughter was, in fact, planning my funeral after she had found out about it. But because I had survived and am thriving and all is well, I've had all of these conversations with her about how to be a young woman in the world. But there are so many women who don't have mentors in their lives on how to be a successful young professional woman. So Letters to My Daughter launches on March 1st to fill that space. Excellent. And uh, we'll include that in the show notes and also your social media links as well so that people uh, can find out more about it and the show. And And I'm really excited about it. It sounds like a really fun project to do and uh, an important one at that. So that's really awesome. Uh, what are three things, Alyssa, you're grateful for in life? I am grateful for how awesome my kids are. They're just fantastic, fantastic humans with compassion and fortitude. I'm I'm grateful for my whole family. I'm especially grateful for my brother's kidney that <laughs> is keeping me alive. I'm grateful just being alive and having the ability to share hope and encouragement and lessons with other people. That is so great. And I would like to acknowledge you, Alyssa, uh, for a few things here. One is 
what an incredible journey that you've had in life. I mean, it is just uh, so inspiring. And oftentimes, life gives us adversities and challenges, and not everybody has the fortitude to deal with it uh, so elegantly that the way you have. And uh, really uh, taking the lessons from that challenges and not only being a role model, but living those principles of putting others first and, you know, seeing the humor in life and then asking creatively what if questions and, you know, focusing on feelings uh, with compassion. And you're teaching us day in and day out as to, uh, you know, with your message, with your speaking and just the way you're being. Uh, every time I've met you, is just incredible. So thank you for being you. And this has really uh, been great. Thank you. Uh, is there anything else that uh, this has been really excellent? Is there anything else that I may not have asked that you would like to share? Mm. I, well, the only other thing, uh, I guess, just... Uh, I've been asked over and over by people, are you, are you writing a book? Have you written a book? And so the the answer is yes, working on the book. Uh, that's a, also a hard project, just harder to do. But the book is called Semi-Tragic, The Extraordinary Impact of Leading with Faith. And it is a memoir of my experiences and as an entrepreneur and a leader uh, facing massive obstacles. So that book should be out. I will be out this year sometime. Okay, excellent. And then, um, yeah, and, uh, you know, when, when it's out, and if you want to come on the show again and talk more about it, we'll be glad <laughs> to have you back. Uh, Thank you. And one final question, and this is how we wrap up all our interviews, and that is, uh, Elisa, why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends? I think people should listen to the wisdom of friends, first of all, because you're a fantastic interviewer. I love it. I've recommended you to other people. I've listened to so many episodes and told friends of mine who have podcasts that they should listen to you because you're you're really very, very eloquent in your interviewing skill. I love what you're able to draw out of your guests on the show, both professionally and personally. And the fact that you get a full rounded view of people uh, professionally and personally. So people show up at, like friends as real, real humans who have wisdom and also highlights lowlights a whole life so people should listen to wisdom of friends for all of those reasons great thank you so much i truly truly appreciate that feedback and compliments and and i enjoyed our conversation uh this morning and i truly appreciate uh, you taking the time to be on the show and for those of us who are listening with that we'll wrap it up thank you Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Carla Rass. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to wisdomoffriends.net to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content. We hope you'll pass along our web address, wisdomoffriends.net, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archive section on the website for previous episodes and subscribe on iTunes, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank, Thank you. you. This has been a Seven Symphonies production Join us next time for another edition of The Wisdom of Friends.